morning. After uh, last week's sermon on Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, this doesn't happen often, but it happened last week. After that sermon, I discovered something about the passage that I did not know before I preached it. I actually hate it when that happens. I could have used this an hour ago, but that afternoon I continued reading um, this book I was reading. It's an eye-opening book by Alan Kreider entitled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Impossible Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. I'm only about halfway through that book. It's an academic book, but it's, it's pretty easy reading in my opinion. But the basic provocative premise of the book is quite simple. It is that the early church did not have an organized program or approach to evangelism. In fact, they were quite secretive about who they were and what they did uh, and their worship practices. They did not, it wasn't because they feared persecution so much. It was because uh, they felt that what they had was too valuable, too sacred to be shared with outsiders, with people who had not yet come to faith in Christ and been baptized. Worship and church life were only for insiders, and yet the church grew dramatically in those first few centuries. Some estimates are by as much as 40% per decade. Those who wanted to become insiders, those who wanted to become followers of Jesus, had to enter into a lengthy and rather demanding process of training that was designed not only to teach them doctrine, but also to teach them a way of living, new habits for living and becoming more like Christ. They believed that by living as Jesus taught them in the Sermon on the Mount, learning to be patient with the world, patient with themselves, and patient with God, that God would be at work in and through them, changing them little by little, like yeast in a batch of dough, or like water and grape juice being turned into wine. Their patient fermentation into a Christ-like community would then yield fruit in the relationships that would draw their neighbors to Christ. It wasn't about something they did. It was about something beautiful they were becoming. And people noticed. It was primarily about their own transformation as followers of Jesus. What I discovered last Sunday afternoon was that last week's passage, Isaiah chapter 2, verses in the center part of it, verses 2 through 4, sat alongside Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as key to teaching and training the earliest followers of Jesus how they were supposed to live. The Sermon on the Mount in last week's passage from Isaiah 2. One scholar said that Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, is the most often quoted prophetic passage by the early Christian writers. Justin Martyr, a philosopher and apologist for the faith who lived in the second century, used Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, to describe the culture, the culture that was being cultivated in these small church communities, these house churches. So with all of that in mind, let me reread the central part of last week's passage because this passage, this week's passage, is going to build on it. Again, Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. This is where it connects. 
The law will go out from Zion. The instruction will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes of many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. At the heart of it all, this passage taught the early Christians where God was taking all things and how to trust him and to have patience as they sought to walk in God's path toward in that direction. And it served as a model for them. They should live lives of unprecedented peace, harmony, and justice with one another. We don't have to look too far today, I don't think, to notice the lack of peace and harmony and justice in the world or in our hearts. The violence of mass shootings in our country, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the violence against women who are protesting the, protesting the Iranian government all prove that we're not there yet, and you could name countless others. Say nothing of the lack of peace that is within our homes and within our relationships, within our hearts. The vision of Isaiah 2, suffice it to say, has not come to pass in its fullness. But in the early church, it was coming to pass in these small communities of believers, these house churches. These Christians would gather and they would learn together to trust God, to love one another, and to love their neighbors as themselves. On this second Sunday in Advent, is all about peace. Earlier we lit the candle of peace in our Advent wreath. And in the reading from Isaiah 11 this morning, we are given a, a beautiful, sweeping picture of peace and justice among human beings, but also among the animals in the created order and between animals and human beings. Later in this season, when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we will be reminded of the story of the shepherds who, while they were out tending their flocks, a host of angels appeared to them and said, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah speak to an historical situation that was brewing at the time he prophesied. A time when the Assyrians were conquering the northern part of the divided kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. I said this last week, but I just want to repeat it to keep it in context. They conquered Israel in 721 B.C., but they were moving ever closer to the southern kingdom of Judah as well. In 701 B.C., the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. There was no peace. There was no peace. And then late in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah prophesies that God will intervene. So we're going to read the last couple of verses of Isaiah 10 and then move right into chapter 11, verse 1. See, the Lord, the Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall trees will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Verse 1 of chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Assyrians are likened to the famed forests of Lebanon. The lofty trees will be chopped down. Their boughs will be, their branches will be cut off, and they will fall before God, never to rise again. But the stump of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, the house from which King David came a few hundred years prior, well, that will be different. A shoot will come up from that stump. Contrary to the stumps that have fallen, or are the fallen trees of the Assyrians, the line of Jesse will 
rise again. This is a very poetic, prophetic way to speak of the coming of a new king, one like David. And then Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, begins to speak about the nature of this coming king's reign. Verses 1 through 3a tell us about the spirit of God that will anoint this king, that will rest on this king. Verses 3b through verse 5 speak of the activities of the king, what this king will do. The passage opens with the spirit of the Lord resting on this king. The word Messiah is not used in this passage, but in later history, the person described here in in Isaiah chapter 11 was identified as the Messiah, even before the Messiah came. Messiah, the word Messiah means anointed. It speaks of the king being anointed with God's spirit and being anointed with the oil when the king is installed. Both the word Messiah from the Hebrew and the word Christ from the Greek mean anointed. So in a sense, you could actually say that every king of Israel was a Messiah, lowercase m if you want. They were all Messiahs in that sense because they were all anointed by the spirit of God for that task. Isaiah then gives three pairs of words describing the kind of spirit the king will receive and display in his reign, followed by another phrase that sort of elaborates on one of the descriptions. So Isaiah 11, verses 2 through first part of 3. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom and understanding are about the practical realities of ruling and the ability to deal with political and judicial matters fairly and justly. Counsel and might are about diplomatic and military judgment and authority. How will the king deal with foreign affairs? How will the king deal with the nations who war against Judah? Knowledge and fear of the Lord speak specifically of the king's relationship with God. Knowledge is not just general knowledge. It is knowledge of the Lord which we'll hear about again toward the end of the passage in verse 9, where we're told that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the king to truly rule justly and fairly and compassionately, he will need the Spirit of the Lord to rest upon him. And he will need to truly know the fear of the Lord. And what what does that mean, the fear of the Lord? Does that mean that he should be afraid of God? Does that mean we should fear God? No, we should not. But we do hold God in awe. And we revere God as uppermost in our lives, the one to whom we owe everything. Rulers, presidents, prime ministers, and dictators fear things today. They may fear public opinion. They may fear journalists and what they will say about them. They may fear their opponents. They may fear protests. And these rulers in, in the world order, they, they act and they make decisions and they make judgments based on those fears. But this king, Isaiah says, this king will not be like that. This king will delight in the fear of the Lord. To fear God, then, is... Uh, to hold God in absolute awe, that empowers us to live without fear of anyone or anything else. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the implied answer, of course, is no one. 
Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 56, verse 4, what can mere mortals do to me? To fear the Lord is to have no reason to fear anyone or anything else. To fear the Lord is to have no reason to fear anyone or anything else. It is to place our trust so completely in God to have that we can have patience that God is always present and always at work in the world. God is always intervening. I've been thinking about this concept of God and intervening lately, and I've realized, I went through a period of my life where I wasn't sure God really intervened that much. I'm now at a place where I think God is always intervening, so much so that you can't even call it intervening, because he's always at work. He's never standing back and just watching. To intervene seems to say to me, he's stepping in. God is always present and at work. Isaiah adds this uh, qualifying phrase, saying that this king will delight in the fear of the Lord. Fun fact, that word translated as delight literally means to smell or to carry the scent of something. What does it mean to smell of the fear of the Lord? It means that anyone around us knows that we walk with God, that we fear God, that we know that God is with us, that our trust is in God alone, and that we are not afraid of anyone or anything else. The NIV uses the word delight here because that's how the Hebrew word can be used as a metaphor. To carry the scent of something is because you delight in it. It's all over you. Sort of like, apologize for the image, Sort of like when I take my dogs for a walk. Yeah, you know. And my older dog, Scully, not so much the younger one, she will see, smell something, and just turn and roll in that. If I'm really on my game that day, I will see it coming and pull her past whatever that is before she rolls. But sometimes I don't do it. And it's not pleasant, but I guarantee you she delighted in it. And she smells like she delighted in it. Begs the question, doesn't it? What are we rolling in? What are we rolling in? What have we been delighting in? And what impact does that thing that we delight in have on us? How does it shape us? How does it make us smell to others? I don't know if those are funny laughs or embarrassed laughs. Makes me think of that scene in the book of Acts, chapter 4. The apostles John and Peter are are brought before the religious leaders who are questioning them because they've just healed a man and they have been teaching people about Jesus and the resurrection. By what name do you do this? The leaders ask. And Peter answers them boldly, proclaiming that though, though, though they killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, and now there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Luke, the author of Acts, responds this way in verse 13 of chapter 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You might say that Peter and John reeked of Jesus. And that is what gave them the courage they needed at that moment. They had been with Jesus, and that was enough. It was obvious. To delight in the fear of the Lord is to delight in the fact that because we hold God in this ultimate place of absolute awe and reverence, we can be bold 
And we can be courageous. And we can even be peaceful and calm, come what may, just like Peter and John. We can live as those early Christians who gave their lives to the vision of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We can delight in these things, knowing that they will transform us little by little and leak out of us and draw others to Christ. Isaiah 11, verses 3 through 5, teaches us what this king who delights in the fear of the Lord will do. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. There's a tremendous ability on the part of this king to care for and to rule over justly the people, especially the poor and the needy of the earth. He will speak with authority and he will punish the wicked. Because this king, this Messiah, delights in the fear of the Lord. He can judge by an entirely different standard. A standard of the the, the righteousness and the faithfulness that he wears around his waist like a belt. In the second half of our passage, the scene shifts. Now we're not looking at this king who was going to be like David. We are looking at something well beyond that. And this is a good time, I think, it would help us to think about how to best read the Old Testament prophets. Too often today, in my experience, I'm afraid, we have been taught or we act as if whatever we read uh, in the the prophets was only intended for us. It didn't mean a thing to the people thousands of years ago. But I think that's to do them a great injustice. When we are talking about the Old Testament prophets, author and scholar uh, Christopher J. Wright uses a model, there are several, but I like this one, uses a model of three horizons to which the prophets spoke. The first horizon is the prophet's current situation. So for example, in today's passage, it is quite likely, most scholars agree, it is quite likely that Isaiah and those who read his words thought that the fulfillment of this prophecy was King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of those rare good kings in the Old Testament. He made a lot of positive changes during his reign, but he was not perfect. No, for that we need to look beyond the first horizon to the second horizon. The second horizon would be the first advent. Advent is a word that just means coming or arrival. The first advent or arrival of Christ. The incarnation, when God, the Word, took on flesh and blood and bone and became one of us and entered into the world. Something new has been brought into existence and it changes things. Christopher Wright says that the prophets do not only speak about a coming person, but rather they describe things that can only be perfectly true through Jesus. That's the second horizon, the New Testament times. And then there is a third horizon. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. There are things the prophets speak of that go way beyond anything that you or I or anyone else has ever experienced or will experience until God restores all things. It would be fair to say then that the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 11 speak to the first two horizons. In that day, as I said, many thought 
King Hezekiah was the fulfillment of Isaiah's words. And to a certain extent, he was. That was the first horizon. But Hezekiah didn't fulfill these things as fully or as completely as Jesus would one day do, which speaks to the second horizon. Jesus will be the one on whom the Spirit of God more fully rests. Think of his baptism. He will be the one who reigns with true justice, true righteousness, true authority, true compassion for the least of these. But what comes next in Isaiah 11 is clearly focused on the third horizon. As I read it, I want you to listen to the imagery of the Garden of Eden as well. Listen for it. It pops up in here. For the third horizon is, in a sense, a return to the original blessing of creation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the Garden of Eden, there were no carnivores, remember? What was given for both humans and animals to eat was vegetation, not meat. The lion will eat straw like the ox. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent was an enemy. But in the new creation, an infant can play near the cobras and a child can put her hand into the viper's nest without being bitten. This caused me to think about what that might be like and I found it humorous. Can you imagine the vipers in their home and this kid keeps sticking her hand in there and playing with them? Can you imagine one viper turning to the other and saying, man, I sure miss the days when we could just bite them. All of this is way, way beyond anything we have experienced or ever will experience on planet Earth in its current state. But Isaiah gives us a preview. He gives us a preview of where things are going. He gives us some hope to hang our hats on. Isaiah promises a peaceful and just ruler and a time of great peace. A peaceful and just ruler and a time of great peace. Not only, not only peace in the sense of the absence of conflict, but the, the presence of the Hebrew concept, the Hebrew word shalom. That word does not appear uh, in this passage, but this is all about shalom. The word shalom comes from a root word meaning to make whole. To make whole. It is a picture of needs being met, of restitution, of forgiveness, of healing, of well-being and prosperity. This is all Third horizon stuff, though we can certainly get a taste of these things in the present horizon as well. This is very similar to the language that we looked at when we were going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are once again in this language of the overlap between this present age and the age to come. Since the coming life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we live in both the second and the third horizons. We live in between them. Let's put it that way. We have crossed over the, the second horizon. The third horizon is not here, but it is already in view. And we are already able to experience it to some extent. We can begin to live into the reality of that third horizon 
the age to come, even now. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any of us is in Christ, there is a new creation. A new creation has come. It has come in us and upon us, and it is also breaking into the world and beginning to transform it, even now. Each of us carries this new creation with us. Even more so, we who come together as a community, as the people of God, who seek to know God and follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world together, we can become outposts of new creation amid the old. Outposts of new creation. We can live out the promises of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. We can live in harmony and justice and peace with one another, thus giving the world a tangible object lesson, a demonstration of the possibilities of life in the kingdom of God. In and through us, new creation is being birthed into the world. So as we close, I want to do something a little different. I want to invite you to a time of silent prayer, and if we can just close our eyes, so go ahead now, if you're comfortable with that, close your eyes. And I'll invite you just to slow your breathing down a bit. And then I want you to just think of one area of life that is not as it should be. One area of life, just one. It shouldn't be hard. One area that does not reflect the new creation, where God is taking things. It can be a personal or family situation, or it can be of national or global importance. Everything from an unresolved conflict in the family or at work to the invasion of Ukraine. Take a few seconds. Pick one thing, one thing in life, personally or around the globe, Maybe it's something you are passionate about, you care about. Maybe it's something that distresses you a great deal. And name that before God. Hear the promise of new creation from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. On this second Sunday in Advent, <clears throat> as we approach the celebration of the birth of our Savior, the Word made flesh, the one 
who came and lived among us, the righteous and just King who rules with compassion and mercy. As we prepare to celebrate that, I want to invite you to do something we don't do very often here at ECC, but I want us to do it today as we enter into this season a little more deeply. I want us to I invite us to stand and profess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed, which will appear on the screen here. Would you stand? <clears throat> Join with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 